Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. The NFL season, it's in the final leg. And look, you couldn't be at the game this year, but you can still be in on all the action at BetOnline. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And don't forget, there's always that online casino as well. It never closes. So head to BetOnline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's BetOnline.ag and take advantage of the sign-up bonuses today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming into the pod. We're heading back to our Chicago movie podcast series today with one of my favorite films of all time but first let's bring in our two guests today our first guest look he's the kind of guy who goes to the ice cream parlor and he tries every flavor and his major pet peeve in his life is when the attendant always switches the samples it's dan sanders joyce hello dan hey guys listen ladies if you've been looking for me i'm just like richard kimball right under your nose exactly where you wouldn't expect me and per pre-pod information, has been going commando during quarantine the whole time. We'll get to that at another time. Our other guest today coming in, his average foot speed over uneven ground provided ample time for stretching, a nice pair of comfy sketchers and some protein bars is four miles an hour. You could check every gas station, residence, farmhouse, outhouse, hen house, and doghouse. But checkpoints go up right here on this pod right now because he is here with us. His name is Dr. Daddy Jeffrey Meacham. Go get him. How are you, my friend? You just had the most terrifying thing an actor could have. You stole my bit. You, oh, no. I was going to say, you can't find me. I'm probably in an outhouse or a hen house. <laughs> then you stole it. So I got nothing. I'm just and now you're under, the, you're under the bright lights, and uh, you're just saying yes and. <laughs> yep, I'm here. If you haven't figured it out by now, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking today about the movie The Fugitive. One of my favorite movies of all time, a movie shot in Chicago. So it counts on this Betting Chicago podcast today, a movie that was released August 6, 1993. It goes $368.9 million at the box office. Gentlemen, we're about to ask each other how we met the movie in our relation to it now. But just keep in mind that in 1993, the top hits rocking the charts in 1993 was UB40's Can't Help Falling in Love. Mm. Whoop, there it is, was burning up the charts. And that weekend, there was a movie coming out, a little movie called Meteor Man, that was expecting to dominate the box office August 6th. Who knew that this little indie film starring this unknown actor, Harrison Ford, would blow it out of the water? It is The Fugitive. Jeff, I'd like to start with you first. When did you first see the movie? What is your relationship with the movie now? I'm so happy you asked me that. So this is one of the probably 10 movies that I can think of where I know exactly where I was uh, when I saw it. Um, my so I was 14 years old. I was about to start high school in a few weeks. And I spent the summers with my dad in Connecticut. And around this age, as a teenager, this is where I really thought my, my I had two older half-brothers. I have two older half-brothers, and they're my idols. And so my dad uh, sent me for a week to go visit my brother, Michael, in Washington, D.C. So I get there, and I was like, let's go see a movie. And if there's this theater in DC called the Uptown Theater, and it's a single movie theater, and it's huge, and it's amazing, and it's beautiful. And of course, all summer long, they were showing Jurassic Park. And I was so excited to go see Jurassic Park. And so, but back in those days, it wasn't just as simple. I think you had to look in the magazine or make a phone call to find out. 
And I remember them being like, The Fugitive, rated R. I'm, is it rated R? Is it PG-13? It is. Oh, no, it's rated R. We've got oh, crushed course. skulls. You know, there's some language, minor what language. What am I thinking? So, yeah. So, I went with my brother, Michael, to the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. to watch The Fugitive and had no expectation. You know, I was more of a cliffhanger guy in the firm that summer than thinking about The Fugitive. And, man, watching him jump off of that aqueduct on the Uptown Theater was honestly something I'll never forget. So that's where I was. Dan Sanders-Joyce, where do you remember where you first saw the movie? What's your relationship to the movie now? So um, it's actually, I'm, I'm glad that we get to talk about this, Joey. Uh, I, I was 10 when this movie came out. Um, I was one of the ones that firmly believed in Meteor Man and went to Meteor Man opening <laughs> for sure. Um, <laughs> First in line, baby, suckers. <laughs> Slept over in the parking lot a few nights before to make sure I was there for, for right at the front of the line. Uh, uh, at 10 years old, The Fugitive was a little outside of my grasp. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in it yet. Um, and Joey, it's really special for me to tell you, I, I am nearly positive that the first time I saw The Fugitive was with you. Ooh. Oh really? Uh, and it is a it is a movie that we've seen more than a couple of times together. Uh, uh, it's it was one of those like rotation movies that was you know it just ca it came it, it it was it was on in either one of the households that we had together or you know one of the households that you had in the couch that I slept on more times than I slept in my own bed. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, man, the fugitive actually is tied very closely to you in my mind. That's hilarious because anecdotally, uh, one of the things I want to bring up about The Fugitive and the reason why it's one of my favorite movies of all time is that it's a genre buster. And personally, in my opinion, I can pitch this movie to anybody if that hasn't seen it before and they will watch it and they will enjoy it. Right. I think I probably did the, oh, you haven't seen The Fugitive. Oh, you're going to love it. You know, and my wife, who isn't necessarily like a big action freak, she doesn't really like science fiction movies. Still, I'm just like honey, we're going to watch this movie. You're going to love it. She saw it, I think, last year for the first time and absolutely adored the film for the very first time. It stood the test of time. I mean, The Fugitive, you could just tell anybody, doesn't matter what kind of movies you like, you're going to like this movie. I saw this movie in the movie theaters. My mother, bless her heart, would always wait until there was a movie theater in Morton Grove, Illinois, and it was $1.75 to go see the movies. But the movie theater would only get the films like a week before they'd come out on video. It was one of those places. It's one of those like transfer houses. So she took me there to see it and I saw it for $1.75. And yeah, the train sequence, the damn, the music that's like half a cocaine cat on a piano keyboard mixed with slinky jazz. Like the whole thing I just absolutely fell in love with. And for me too, like this is such a Chicago movie because. I don't know about you guys, but this movie is so cold to me. Everyone seems to be freezing. Everyone seems to be one layer underdressed. It's just gray outside. It seems like it's windy. It's shitty outside. The St. Paddy's Day Parade, we're going to get into all of it. But every single thing just feels like a cold February day in Chicago to me. And for Chicagoans, that kind of really is the essence of living in that city. Dan, hop in. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, that St. Paddy's when you, you the cold looks a certain way and you're exactly right joey like whenever they're outside and I, i'm i couldn't quite place when that fundraiser would have been i guess around the first of the year because then they get to saint patty's day in the movie so i'm guessing it's around january is where we start in the movie they're not totally clear about that um 
but yeah, it's cold. And anybody that spent any time in Chicago knows that February is the coldest month of the year. It's absolutely insane there. There was a February, I remember when, we, when I was living there, where the first two weeks, it never got above negative 20 degrees. And the first like 11 days, there was only seven total minutes of sunshine. Uh, and and that, that's exactly what cold looks like. It, it, it's a great representation of, of cold in Chicago, I thought. Yeah, even the skyline shots look like it's absolutely a freezing day where you get in your car and you, you, know, you dug yourself out and you sit in your car for a second. You want to turn it on. You're just yeah. freezing or your if, ass off. Where if you hit the Sears Tower, it was at that point. If you hit the Sears Tower too hard, it would all just shatter and crumble into a, into a, <laughs> yeah, into a bunch of pieces. Is it and, not the Sears Tower anymore? No, it's called the Willis Tower now. Bruce Willis bought it? <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. After Die Hard, he just got really into tall buildings, and now he lives at the top floor and just looks down upon people and talks shit on Kevin Smith. It's pretty great. You'd think it would be the Yakutomi Plaza, but uh, not. <laughs> yeah, too much on the nose. So The Fugitive, directed by Andrew Davis, very famously did Under Siege, the movie previous to The Fugitive, went on to do hits like Chain Reaction, also shot in Chicago, Perfect Murder, Holes, uh, a movie composed by James Newton Howard. James Newton Howard, Major League, Pretty Woman, Prince of Ties, Glengarry Glen Ross, Dave, Outbreak, Primal Fear, Space Jam, Devil's Advocate, Sixth Sense. I mean, this dude is an elite composer, pretty incredible. I do want to get into the music, but we're going to go we're going to walk through this one, what I'm just going to call in sections here. We're going to go in four different sections. The first one is called, you know, The Murder, The Escape. I mean, this situation for Richard Kimball is fucked five ways to Sunday, right? I mean, he has a struggle with a one-armed man, first of all, the Hail Mary of all excuses. Uh, you know, if you're going to really pull that one out, you know, you can only pull that out once in your life. So he's in that situation. The murder happens. He gets brought in for an interrogation. The interrogation is, goes awful. Let's just say he doesn't perform quite well. You know, your thoughts on the, the aptitude of his lawyer, this 911 call that's told. I mean, is this, is this whole thing fast-tracked, properly tracked, or under-tracked instead of Kimball going from arrested to being charged and then eventually being sentenced to death? Yeah, I mean, when you watch the movie now as an adult, and especially this is one of those movies where – when you watch it too many times, like we all have, just that sequence in itself, you're like, you get a little bothered by certain things. You know, there's that old movie thing where instead of dealing with it, they just don't talk. The character just doesn't speak and say anything. And that's a way to solve, well, that's nothing happened because he didn't say anything. And that's exactly what happens here. Like, <laughs> I, I, my favorite shot actually is when you when he's in the interrogation room and then you cut back to the guys behind the mirror, the old behind the mirror group. And I love that one actor who doesn't say anything except book him. And that's all he says is book him after they're just positive where the fingerprints are. Also, was there no footprints by the one-armed man? Was there no fingerprints by his other hand? Like there's just none of that anywhere on her body. He, he wrestled both of them an incredible amount of times. Yep, yep, exactly. Just nowhere in the house does that guy's hair, that guy's hair is so greasy. You can't tell me one strand of his hair didn't fall somewhere in the house. So, but I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. Like they do is such a good job. His, his acting is fantastic. And then you find him. It's just the best. 
And then and one of the murderers, uh, murderers follies don't have curly, uh, gelled hair. Uh, if you're going to be committing a murder, maybe put a cap on that sucker. Cause yeah, a couple of maybe hairs could probably fall off. Uh, signs of a struggle, perhaps uh, footprints in the blood, as you mentioned. Dan, I want to ask you this question. And this is an acting question, so I want to hear from both of you guys. Harrison Ford, at the end of the interrogation scene, he does the breakdown and cries and goes like, my God, she took everything from me while they're trying to get information from him. In your opinion, is that Harrison Ford playing that sincerely? Or is that like, I need to put a touch of this character is fucking up this interrogation. Like he's kind of like pissing in the water just a little bit. Or do you think he's sincerely like having a breakdown? It feels like he's playing both sides where he's like, I need to, I need to put the specter of guilt into this character by kind of playing it a certain way. What's your take on that scene, Dan? So I'm sorry. Are you asking me if he, if he Harrison Ford knows that he needs to plant a seed of doubt in our, the audience's mind? Uh, Correct. So By like playing it a certain way when he breaks down. And as you mentioned, Jeff, I'm speaking to that silence that you're talking about, of like not answering the questions. This interrogation is so going terribly. Here's, here's my only thing with that is we know the audience knows from the very beginning that Harrison Ford never did this, that Richard Kimball never did this. We know that he got called off to surgery. Uh, we, we know all of the, like, for me, there was never a shred of doubt in my mind that this wasn't a setup, that, that he's not on the lam because he genuinely believes that <clears throat> he's innocent. So for me, as an actor, if I'm looking at this script, I know I have to play this completely true the entire way through. I, I don't know that there's ever a moment uh, it's doubt in, in the, in, at least in my mind as the audience, that Richard Kimball was ever guilty of this. He definitely has PTSD of some kind. He's in shock. And so I right. saw more in this, watching it last night again, I definitely saw the more shell-shocked character. So there might be that where he's just not in his right mind. Yes. He doesn't know exactly what to say because he literally just saw his wife die, basically, I assume in his arms at some point, you know, or we went and picked her body up before the cops got there. And then even when he gets onto the bus, he's still in shock that he's shackled up and going somewhere. So I'm, I, I went off on the, as an actor, he played shock. So that's a great point. So the shock perhaps leads to the ambiguity because as a, right. as a narrative thing, you don't want to make it seem like he's totally getting railroaded. I mean, these cops in theory just seem like it's an open and shut case. This is easy. And that's a great point where until that moment when the gavel bangs and they say that he's guilty and he has that shocking moment, it almost seems like that's like that weird little electroshock of him out yeah. of this moment of catatonic, you know, just being in shock like you're talking about. The 911 call, uh, just one of the worst contextualized calls of all time. I mean, man, that's just that is just a burn <laughs> unlike any other. I'm trying to think of like a sports analogy to pair it with, but man, that's just a rough ride. Dude, just remember, she just took a bocce ball to her skull, so she's not uh, she's not all there. The poor thing. I mean, it's well done, well acted on Seal Awards part, and uh, and you know, must be that good of acting because she got third billing for yeah. <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, she does a really good job in the calling his name Richard right after. He's, it's very well done. I think that sequence is fantastic. The yeah, and it completely seals the deal for him to yeah. uh, be found guilty, and he's heading off, and he gets in the bus, and now we're coming up to this train sequence. 
which I'm very excited to talk about. It happens so early on in the movie, but perhaps, I don't know, we're going to throw a lot of scenes out there, but perhaps one of the best scenes in the movie. You know, let's just start maybe kinetically, emotionally. Dan, you know, what do you think of when you think of that scene going back to when you saw it the first time, how you see it now? It's still just an incredible, incredible action sequence. Yeah, you, you're right. The action sequence is fun. And what's really fun for me is watching Harrison Ford, Dr. Richard Kimball, sort of like put together the, what's happening bef- like split seconds before it happens, right? He sees, the, he sees the one prisoner like swallow the tablet that makes him foam at the mouth or whatever. He sees the connection between uh, the, one, the one prisoner that ends up getting shot later and, and the, the guy that causes the distraction and like puts it together right before it happens. So he's always just like a half a beat ahead of what's happening. And that's why he can kind of get through all of this stuff. I also, I want to pose the question, uh, what was Dr. Richard Kimball's fugitive movie that taught him to survive? And Because for me, it's The Fugitive, right? Like if I were to ever be on the lam, I would use what I've learned in The Fugitive to get away from the U.S. Marshals. But what did Dr. Richard Kimball use? Because he knew very clearly how to get out of all of these situations that, he, that he's faced with, right? Well, and he definitely just kept going back to the hospital And so his training obviously let him go back because he had to like heal himself and and wrap himself up. And then I, then he began to just think, I just got to keep hanging around the only place that I know to try and get answers, to try and find this one armed man. And maybe it sort of starts from there. He doesn't really branch out any further from that. Jeff, the train scene, best scene in the movie. I mean, this is a time when, as you mentioned earlier, Jurassic Park is coming out. CGI is about to change the game, you know, irreparably completely in the movie industry. But this moment, I mean, it's not completely 100% legit, but this is, I mean, they shot this. This is a one take. This is an actual, you know, train car being sent off a little bit of a cliff here, and they're trying to get that, and they got it all in one take. Talk about it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You're absolutely right. It was cheaper to use a real train than to do the miniature. At least that's what I read on IMDb. So that was part of it to, to do that shot. And yeah, it was all one take. Obviously not him jumping out of the train. Also pretty cool that the um, credits went 17 minutes into the movie by the way the credits did not stop until he got on the bus that's my favorite i love that shit i love good exposition through the whole credit sequence to say the director and now here we are just before the train explosion i mean the train sequence the inside the bus listen harrison ford is the reason why the star wars movies are the best movies, you know, why they are. It's not like the, the special effects were all that fantastic. They, the, what made that train sequence fantastic is what was going on inside the bus. Like that, that created the tension. So no matter how good the explosion was, because again, watching it, I, I'm not sure it's the best explosion. Maybe it is. Maybe. It, I, I just think what happened in the train, man, with him trying to save that dude's life who just got stabbed and the perfect counter to that with that terrible guy that just jumps out and he's like, screw this. And he leaves, you know, when he's like, Kimball, come help me. Um, that that created such great tension. And and, and then, then, then to find out that that guy's alive, who then recognized Kimball later on at the hospital. Side note, uh, uh, Harrison Ford looking very handsome when he's half naked stabbing himself in the butt with a, a needle. He's jacked. The curve yeah, The of doctor his does eye. burpees. He does the burpees. Yeah. He does a good burpee. He looked good in that sequence. So, hmm. 
oh, fantastic. Maybe, maybe the best. As we talk along, I'll see if there's something better. But train sequence, yeah. Yeah, not my like not like the greatest explosion I've ever seen in an action movie. I mean, the iconic moment of him leaping from the train is just something that I don't think can be replicated. I mean, you could probably try and do it CGI, but it just won't quite feel the same. Obviously, it's obviously doctored as well. And then, as you mentioned, just went the Michael Mann route in Heat, where it's just like loud as shit for 25 seconds. You know what I mean? We're just going to assault the audience with sound and stuff exploding and things crashing and him running for the hills trying to outrun this train. And it's just this whole thing where you finally have to sort of catch your breath. So I have a question for you in this particular sequence right here. We'll start with Jeff. I want to hear from Dan. Originally, this film was offered and he was attached. Alec Baldwin was attached to this movie to play the fugitive. So two-part question. One, could Alec Baldwin have pulled out this movie? More specifically, would you have really bought him jumping from this train in this sequence? And two, Jeff, you know Tom Cruise would have done this for real, right? This would have been a real train, real jump. Real, real deal. I mean, and the funny part is Cruz could have played Kimball or he could have played Gerard in this movie. Let's be honest. Could have done either. Okay. So Cruz was not quite at the crazy action hero star he was yet. He was doing his 90s run. So he's still thriller. The firm's a few good men. He still had a few years. So he's going to do Jerry Maguire. So I'm, I'm going to say no. That's not a Cruz movie. Cruz, Cruz didn't become the action star till the 2000s when he just got ridiculous. I will say, though, I did just watch uh, uh, The Hunt for Red October the other day. And were you sna- we're in that place where we are. Uh, uh, Alec Baldwin has become De Niro now, where we see him as this older man now. And he plays these comic roles and he's goofy and he's become a caricature of himself. You go back and you watch what Baldwin did in The Hunt for Red October and all those early films. He was good. He was super good. So I'm going to say he could have played Kimball. And that's sacrilege because this is one of the best characters ever. So, but I'm going to go, yeah. What do you right. Think, it's not like he would have done it better than Harrison Ford, but he would have right. been able to do it. Like you kind of picture him saying some of the, those lines. Dan, are you in agreement? Sure. Would Alec Baldwin have been able to pull this one off? Uh, you know, this is news to me. I did not know that he was offered this role uh, and that he was attached to it. You know, I, I'm going back to Hunt for the Red October, obviously, but also like Backdraft and, and like, Baldwin, that was Alec, right? It's no, Steven. No, that was Steven. That's Steven. Oh, mm-hmm. shit. Okay. All right. Well, then, man, I don't like Harrison Ford is so inextricably linked to this role in my mind that, like, I don't know. Jeff, you bring up a great point about now we see Baldwin as sort of a caricature of his earlier self. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I'd really have to well, think about that. I guarantee point. you, I guarantee you, Baldwin would have looked guiltier in the beginning parts of the movie. I yeah. agree with that. It would have been more of a more of a slam shut case of like, oh, handsome, handsome, suave doctor, you know, is you know, open and shut case. So you probably would have been able to pull that off. But then maybe some of the mechanisms of solving the crime, maybe that's where like Harrison Ford kind of really comes into play. This next section that I want to get to is called the chase. He survives, he gets the handcuffs off, Copeland, be good, and it's on. It's all good. I know, it's fantastic. And enter. Tommy Lee Jones. So before we get into Tommy Lee Jones, and honestly, Harrison Ford versus Tommy Lee Jones in this movie, my question for you, Dan, you're going to go first. You are a fugitive. As you mentioned at the beginning of the pod, you know, the wheels are starting to turn. State your case on which location is the best and first place to run to. The gas station, 
the residence, the warehouse, the farmhouse, the hen house, the outhouse, or the dog house? Where are you going? Where do you think is the best place to hide? Uh, I'm going, boy, uh, I'm, I'm going to the hen house because I can lay low for a little bit. I can regroup. I can maybe use some, some I'm some sure. Eggs, some, get some protein with the eggs. Maybe I got something to eat there. Uh, I also, I'll just rip a chicken apart and eat that. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's probably a, there's probably a garage nearby a hen house that's got some tools that I can probably use as well uh, to help me in this situation. Wow, this is a really fun Dan Sanders Joyce and the Fugitive movie starts just ripping apart chickens uh, to survive. <laughs> it's really, uh, I'm going to ask you, Jeff, uh, gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, dog house. You're on the run. You're a fugitive. Which place are you going to first? Which do you think is the best place to hide? Like the little boy in Schindler's List, I go into the outhouse. I dive right into the shitter. <laughs> no one's going in there, right? Nobody's going in there, man. It stinks. The dogs can't scent that. So you go right into the 1852. It's got a little slit of a moon, a little crescent moon on the door. You open that thing up. No one's finding you. I'm just imagining you're in there. It's all quiet. And then you hear the crumpling of twigs. And it's just some dude who's like, what, honey? No, I got to go now. So Joey, let me ask you, where's the, where's he being taken? Is he being taken down to Joliet? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not. I, I think so. If we know our Chicago, I don't know if it's exactly lined up because there are a couple of moments too where they sort of cheat the distance yeah, oh, from places sure. in Illinois. You know what I mean? For like, sure. so that does seem to make sense that that's the jail that they're sending him down to, which also sort of plays with he's able to relatively get back to the city right. within a few days. Right, right. You know what I mean? And um, let's not forget that that's North Carolina, by the way. That has exactly. nothing to do with Chicago, Illinois. That's North Carolina. <laughs> well, Chicagoans know that because the river looks far too clean. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, that's not saying much. I'm not giving that a, I'm not giving that props right there. But I mean, so I do want to ask you guys now, Tommy Lee Jones enters. Let's be real. One of the coolest, greatest intro scenes ever. It's a walk and talk into basically like the presentation and declaration of here I am in this movie. And then literally states to the audience and the members in the cast of, who I am, what I'm about to do, and what is about to happen. It's one of the coolest tightly written scenes I've ever seen. Everyone knows this is a Harrison Ford movie. But from the moment Tommy Lee Jones shows up, you can't take your eyes off of him, and you're kind of dying to see the next scene that he's in. So kind of a cliched question, but Harrison Ford coming off of Last Crusade in 89, Presumed Innocent in 1990, Regarding Henry 91, Patriot Games 92. He's on a roll, and he's about to keep ripping. Tommy Lee Jones, though, in a weird way, this is a bit of his breakout to the mainstream. I mean, he did JFK in 91, Under Siege 92. You know, Under Siege was a cult classic, but not necessarily like a huge box office hit. And then went off and ripped off a bunch of movies. So, Dan, let's go to you first. You know, does Tommy Lee Jones steal this movie from Harrison Ford? I don't want to say win the movie, but does he kind of steal it from him? I mean, he's got the hardware to show it, too, right? Let me answer that question with a question, Joey. Who do we quote from this movie? Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. He has maybe some of the best one-liners ever in any movie, in, in movie history in this movie. I mean, from, from the beginning, like when he lets the sheriff be a dick at the very top and, and the sheriff goes like, shut up guy. And he goes, okay. 
<laughs> the way that he plays the, to the shut up to the girl after he blows uh, her boyfriend's head off to uh, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care to um, uh, we'll he did a Peter it. Pan right off this here. Damn. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, find the fish that ate him. Put a line in the, put a line in there. Yeah, go get a cane pole and find the fish that ate him. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the guy, we got a gopher, like, you know, he's, Tommy Lee wins this movie, in my opinion. And he's just the, he's the orchestrator of, you know, you know, he's the conductor of this orchestra of a team and he's just like rat. It's just so tight and so fast. 1994 best supporting actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, what's eating Gilbert Grape, John Malkovich in the line of fire, Ralph Fiennes, Schindler's List, Pete Postulate in the name of the father. I mean, this is a list, it's guys. Murders Row. Those we are all, all legendary performances. We all know those roles. And Tommy Lee Jones comes out the winner in The Fugitive. And I'm not going to knock it. You know what I mean? I really can't. It's that incredible. Jeff, you know, does Tommy Lee Jones steal this movie? It, it, and it's not just Tommy Lee Jones. Let's not forget the, the supporting characters of the Marshall's office are phenomenal. I mean, they are phenomenal. We all love Joey Pants. But... Oh, the, 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 the shorter black woman, right off the bat, you get her character when they're making fun of her for wearing heels. And she says something like, she's like, I'll remember that at the next train and crash. And the guy with the mustache in the back, who's a veteran actor, he's, I looked his IMDb up. I don't even have his name here. He's been in over 245 movies. He plays a lot of dads. Yeah. He yeah. is. Pinky. And, and then the rookie in the background with uh. the ponytail. I mean, their chemistry together, I don't think we've ever seen better chemistry ever in movies with that many people and the fact that they're the supporting cast so some of them might only have five lines total in the whole movie and each one is fantastic when he does the uh hinky do we ever say hinky it's a little hinky a little hinky, hey, hinky I, what does that mean <laughs> well and, and on, to on top of that too it's one of the rare moments where you have a big action film based on a tv show with harrison ford in it Yep. You know, a story, a, you know, a tale as old as time, you know, the guy who didn't do it, tracking down the killer. And then you have this Tommy Lee Jones and this team that is so amazing and so entertaining that it deserves a spinoff and actually gets a spinoff five years later with U.S. Marshals. It is just one of the rare, rare, rare feats of something building outside of the movie. Jeff, hop back in. Yeah, and the, so again, with another big budget movies like this, it, which is crazy that this even occurs, they didn't finish the script. So Tommy Lee Jones actually helped rewrite a lot of his scenes. And they knew the happy accident was they were making a better movie with him and his team than the other ideas they have. The reason why Julian Moore is so highly, uh, so high up on the um, uh, cast list is she was supposed to be a love interest to Harrison Ford and have more scenes. And they were like, no, 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 no. We need Tommy Lee Jones, his U.S. Marshal team, to take over there's a lot in, in also with what's her bucket was supposed to have way more scenes too um why can't i think of her name so, jane lynch jane, jane lynch. lynch yeah jane lynch was even possible supposed to be a, a love interest as well like they had all these other ideas but then tommy lee jones and his team took over you can you can see where they try and plant that seed of the love interest with jane lynch with her first with her first little inter uh in, interrogation yep. unit when she goes that's not a style and i'm like 
Why is Jane Lynch giving me those fuck, fuck me eyes for Harrison? Ford? Yeah, are you talking bedroom style or are you talking at work style? <laughs> what does that Lynch? even mean? Why wouldn't he come to you? Like, what do you mean and, that's not his style? And cool button down, by the way, Miss Lynch. Love it. I, I think it's fantastic. So we're talking about the team right now. Um, I love having this fantasy. So let's play it out together, guys. Daniel, go first. If you were on Sam Gerard's team, you know, this is just uh, either from a fantasy or from an actor's perspective. Which kind of character would you want to play? Yeah. And could you maybe give me like a specific skill that you bring to the table? Everyone's got a little something on that team. What would be your skill and what kind of character would you be on that team? Yeah, uh, real simple. And it's sort of the position that I play in all of my friend groups. Uh, my name is Sykes, which gets a little weird because of the case that we're working. So they end up calling me Slim. And, uh, and I, I do snacks. <laughs> you're, you're catering listen when, when when we're out there on a on a long stakeout who's the guy that's going to keep you happy slim snacks slim. Yes. <laughs> yeah that's just that's awesome too and i just wish that we could redo those scenes like when they're trying to like trace harrison ford's phone call and you just keep slipping in with like plates of hors d'oeuvres, like for everyone. And they're just like, hold on, play that back. Thank you, Dan. Uh, little and mustard. My, uh, play that call back for me. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be way simpler. Play that call back. And I just hand him like a Nutri-Grain bar as he's like, does that say, does that say next stop? I think that sounds like next yeah, stop. And like the tag sentence for the line is just you walking in going, I've got free wheels. Like, and then the dun 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 And we just move on. I love it. I think that's a great, that's a great ad. Jeff, uh, what kind of character would you be on Sam Gerard's team and what would be your skill? I know exactly who I'd be and it's sad to say, but I'm definitely the first guy getting shot and I'm dead. I've been a been like a buddy of his for years. I'm the jokester. I'm cracking jokes with him. We're walking down. We got our guns. We look cool. And I say one little one-liner to him, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's a gopher, and then I stick my head down just gonna fucking yeah. <laughs> bullet to the head. <laughs> I've got that death, the one where I just fall back. Yeah, My and ass. you get you get one line in the third act where like we forget about you, but they're like, "Hey, let's do it for Gary." <laughs> don't for don't forget what happened to Gary. Exactly. Don't be that guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's um, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Um, I'm I'm. It's already kind of in the movie, but my favorite one is the guy who's tracing the call. Um, I just want to make those those hand motions of the string it out motion, string string it out, and then the whole we almost got him, and then like making like weird little like uh, predictions of like he's on the south side. I bet you he's by Harold's chicken. You know what I mean? And then just you finally get the address, and then you scream it at the top of your lungs, fifty five Well Street. You know, and then they're out the door. That's probably my character, but the guy the guy who gets it in the first part of the movie, the oh, the um oh, that guy, the cautionary tale. The cautionary yeah. tale team member. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's super funny. Um, real quick, let's just talk about the damn scene. I don't want to move on from it. We talked about the train scene. It feels like the damn scene and the train scene are kind of in a ring right now, sort of fighting and bouting out for best scene in the movie. You go from the ambulance to underneath, uh, underneath into the tunnels to the very edge. You've got some great iconic lines in there. What's your take on that scene? Yeah, I mean, we've gotten through sort of like the, the um, rebirth of Dr. Richard Kimball, right? Like he's just shaved his beard. He's now got like a little bit to eat. We got a little, we got a little egg sandwich that looked fucking messy oh, as hell. Yes. 
but delicious. Oh, um, <clears throat> amazing. Um, a fresh shave, right? Like then we get that ambulance chase, uh, or the ambulance going through with the chopper, uh, and just the brilliance of going underneath. And then we get the iconic line. We got a gopher. I, for me, the drainage, uh, the the dam scene is is the best. I mean, the Peter Pan off of the dam. Just like, listen, sometimes in life, you got to take a risk, right? You got to jump off and not know if you're going to land safely or not. And Richard Kimball gives it to us. Richard Kimball gives us that choice. Really weird angle at first, right? When he jumps off, he like, Go straight in and you're like, oh, this is, this is fucked. Because he plays, listen, Richard, our, our, um, uh, Kimball does some great, uh, Ford, Harrison Ford does some great stuff as an actor. He starts to kneel down so Tommy Lee doesn't know that he's going to jump and then takes off from a crouched position. <laughs> also, <laughs> that's a great point. Like when he fights, he fights so sloppy. This is fucking Han Solo that we're talking about, but not Richard Kimball. Richard oh. Kimball is not fucking Han Solo. The guy can't throw a punch. He makes these weird faces when <laughs> when he's running through the woods. Like it's, I think he did a great job. Yeah, there's authenticity in his ugly expressions. I think, especially when he's in duress or when he's fighting. Jeff, you know the damn scene, amazing iconic lines that we repeat over and over and over again the last 27 years your favorite scene in the movie and your take on it yeah i don't even know what i was thinking like this is the best scene in the movie that it, it it's far superior to the train scene because you get uh, uh tommy lee jones and his team a uh, little gem for me of a favorite moment is after he does a peter pan right off of here when the four of them are just lost in the tunnels such a great bit it's such a great bit, man, or three of them. Like, that's what makes these guys so fan. That's what makes this movie perfect, because Tommy Lee Jones is a stone-cold killer. He starts as the machine in the movie. This is what makes him so perfect and why he won the Academy Award. So you've got the archetype of the machine. I'm going to kill you. I don't care what you've done. My job is to capture you. But he's got this amazing sense of humor. So he's the Joker at the same time. So you've got this... Also, that jacket he's got with 5,000 Velcro sections on it, where he can just pull a gun, he can show you this. I want that jacket. And he pulls out the gun, and then, yeah, he jumps. You think that sequence is fantastic. Then, yeah, you cut to them being like, which way? Come on! Go up, go up, go up, go up! That's such a great point. It's sort of striking me right now, like like a bolt of lightning, that Tommy Lee Jones is like part Terminator, part Bloodhound. And perhaps maybe why that's my favorite scene and maybe the most popular scene of all time is Harrison Ford and the audience knows that he's innocent if someone was just willing to listen to him. And then you get to that moment and then Tommy Lee Jones very flatly, honestly, just tells him, I don't care because that's not my job. And from that moment on, you know, this guy will be completely relentless and Harrison Ford's on his own. There's no one that's going to help him. He's guilty. You know, he's convicted through the court of law throughout this film. And Tommy Lee Jones just really just puts it right on there. And then when he comes out and mentions the hounds, I'm always just like, he is a hound. He is a bloodhound. He literally can't, once he gets a scent, he cannot stop. Yeah, and don't forget, even later in the film, when you know he's got a lot of evidence that says this guy might be uh, actually innocent and probably the second best scene in the movie when he goes to the um, jailhouse to to find one of the one-armed men, he still shoots at him. He still tries to shoot him in the face and murder him. In the face! Four times! He shoots him, he shoots directly at his head four fucking times! Well, you can get mad at me, sir. I'm the one who shot him. Click. (laughs) Thank you very much. Quick little lightning round. Um, Montages in this movie are incredible. This is where we get the composer. 
this is where we get that slinky, the slinky jazz and the, the, the waterfall uh, piano staccato key plays. And let's just kind of go, I'm going to section them off. Let's make this probably a little quick because we're going to get down to the next section. The two that I have, and we're going to pit them against each other. The first one is, you know, just after Tommy Lee Jones orders, you know, his name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. We launch into a montage. We're running in the woods. We're stealing clothes from the truck. We're going to the hospital. We're, we're cleaning the wound and we're fixing ourselves. We're shaving, as you mentioned, Dan. We're eating the most delicious movie food eggs I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen a handful of eggs in a bare hand that looks so delicious before in my life. That's one. The second one, understated, but honestly, artistically really powerful. He survives the dam. The stream, he gets caught up in the brush. He finally gets to the, you know, to the shore, goes on his back, flips out, perfectly gets this weird dirt line down his face. And then it launches into, on the very next cut, he's checking his wallet to see if he's got any money. He's on the train road tracks, uh, the railroad tracks. And he walks into this tunnel of darkness. And this is right after Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. So this is officially a man on his own going to the other side to not only save his life, but to find out who killed his wife. He dyes his hair, and then he hitchhikes, presumably back to Chicago. Dan, in your opinion, which, uh, which of your montages do you like more? Okay, so I, I'm sorry, Joe, but I got to throw in a third, and it's actually my favorite. It's the montage that I call crossing your T's and dotting your I's because both of the sides really tighten up their shit, right? It's when, it's when Tommy Lee goes back and starts interviewing everybody again. We see Jane Lynch for the first time. Uh, it's when... <clears throat> excuse me, it's when uh, um, uh, Richard, uh, 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 Richard Kimball starts like getting the IDs and everything. That phone booth sequence where he takes those pictures and he tries to do it like very awkwardly because that's how this janitor would do it is a stroke of brilliance. Yeah, and then the, the flash. Like, <laughs> Which is off. a great gift, by the way. If you ever want to throw someone off, there's actually a gift of Harrison Ford taking those photos. Yeah, that's also on the list, too. That's in the next section. Yeah, Slinky Jazz. The cops offer a Scotch reward for taking him in. You get this dope little flute trail. Yeah, yeah, a little flute. He moves into the basement, which has uh, quilts on the walls, which is very, very Chicago, very Polish Chicago. Yeah, starts learning about the scene. Yeah, we'll throw that one in there, and he's calling the list of names, too, as well. So that's your favorite. And that and, and, and is, is that apartment that he lives in not the quintessential Chicago apartment of all Chicago apartments, that, the one that he gets the, the garden apartment in? Oh, yeah, it's dank, it's cold, it smells weird, it smells like a musty thing, but some sort of soup that yeah made two weeks ago. I know it's way down on the south side, but it's also like on Pulaski in Milwaukee. Remember when me and Kyle lived in that attic? <laughs> yes, it's the perfect uh, Chicago basement apartment that you have no problem sleeping till 1.30 in the afternoon in, because what else am I doing? What else am I doing that day? Jeff, uh, out of those three montages, which one's your favorite? Well, I see what you were doing there, that Dan, that Dan so uh, just didn't, didn't care and just jumped ahead on you. It is two different movies. It's two different movies. So the montages from the first one, I think the second one is great when he dyes his hair because that's another classic movie move with a, a movie star, which is he self-dyes his hair and then has the best haircut any human being's ever had before. Looks good. He looked incredible. He looked 10 years younger and he was a giant movie star. But Dan's, I have it written down as my favorite montage is exactly what Dan's talking about. The best moment in that montage is when he's on the L working on stuff and then it cuts to the marshal driving next to that same train. 
So they're so close to each other. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's great. Fantastic music, man. Oh. Yeah, that's in uh, the section that we're going to hop into right now called Solving the Crime. Right. And that, that, the one that you're talking about, Dan, easily is the best montage because the other one I was going to pit against it was Richard gets the samples from Lentz all over the phone. He finds out Lentz is dead, gets the samples from Bones, takes them to Jane Lynch. There's some scene work in there, but in general, it's kind of a bit of a montage because Sykes escapes at that point. The truth is discovered. It really leads into the big ending. But let's go into the Solving the Case aspect and i think this is maybe where we want to talk about the the modernity of this movie um dan your thoughts at this point now uh is this a believable i mean we don't have cell phones we don't have cameras he goes about you know stealing the id to be able to go and get into the computer to find a random set of people based on a particular kind of characteristic of a one-armed man you know, does the uh, does the logic of the movie hold up? I know the ride is great. We love this movie, but uh, clearly, it's that would be hard to pull off in today's uh, 2020. Oh, of course not. But but knowing that it's shot in 1993, I think about this as if I didn't have my device in my hand in my, I wouldn't know how to leave my apartment anymore. So like. The fact that this exists before these cell phones, before like these computers that exist in our pockets were around, I feel like anything could fucking happen. Like, yeah, this this totally tracks because they didn't have these things. So they must not have had any real uh, technology whatsoever. So yeah, it totally tracks for me. Yeah, I, lo- I love the fact, uh, first of all, the custodian has a beautiful singing voice. I mean, get this guy a record contract. He doesn't need to be working as a janitor. He needs to be, he needs to be on the stage and the screen right now with UB40 and whoop, there it is. I'm just going to say it. Someone figure it out. There's a couple great scenes in this section right here. Not only are we figuring out and tracking down who this one-armed man is, but Tommy Lee Jones is, and his team is in full pursuit. One of my favorite scenes of this movie is that phone call. When they get the phone call of the lawyer and Harrison Ford talking about, you know, I don't, I don't need money. I need help. I need, you know, whatever. He's in St. Louis and they try and figure it out. That's just one of like the best ensemble scenes you're really ever going to get from Tommy Lee Jones and everyone gets a little bit of a piece into it. And they think about the L and they roll it back. And that's something now that like in 1993 felt modern, but today seems a little bit ho-hum. But again, that's that's technology in 1993 helping solve the case. It's just a really great scene. I miss that too. We don't. We, again, they have to do all new things in movies now. The, the I I feel bad for writers not being able to do this kind of stuff anymore because back then we got this kind of trait. The way you trace somebody and the way that you figure out who they are, and it just doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's it's so easy to find someone, and that's what makes this movie really unmakeable now i don't think anybody kind of or they have to do it in faraway lands like eastern europe is something has to happen now right and quick quick uh, side note and i want to hear from both of you guys you know that is just really crazy right where it is just so constricting as a writer now constructing these things right because it all leads back to the cell phone it all leads back to the where the camera was there was a camera here there's a camera there there's no real work being done of like listening to the voice and being like, oh, wait, no, that's an L. Wait, who's got an L? We got an L. They got it. You know, really kind of piecing it together. And you're right, unless it's like in the woods or unless they write it explicitly into the script, oh, my cell phone's broken. It's really hard to kind of pull that off these days. It's crazy. I mean, in I believe it's 
uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, if you remember, this is so nerdy of me, the whole concept of that is that these giant drones can go into the air and murder people at the thousands that have criminal records. Like they literally, from the air, a machine can tell you what your entire life story is and then be like, that person doesn't belong on earth anymore, murder them compared to this movie where he can go to the police precinct and not get caught, you know? Yeah, yeah, to rephrase, Dan, do you think we can still tell um, thrillers and action movies that have these twists and turns like this in a 2020 landscape? Or do you think, which happens very often, we'll always forever have to lean back on, you know, 1984, 1992, and go back to a previous technology to tell these type of stories? I I don't. I think that, and I don't think it limits the writer. I actually think it challenges the writer to become more inventive and more imaginative uh, because they have to find new ways now that these sort of like the, like if we're going to break this into groups, the good, bi- good guys versus the bad guys, that the, the quote unquote bad guys have to figure out a way to stay ahead of the good guys long enough, right? Like that to me as a writer is actually really exciting then I would say that this is a little more simplistic. Like you don't have the worry of all of these other traps and whistles and snares that you could fall into. So as a writer, you got to be way smarter and way more inventive to sort of get past this. Uh, That's my take. And speaking of simplicity, Dan, I'm going to come right back at you. Can you believe that they shot the St. Patrick's Day parade with handhelds, gorilla style, Harrison Ford... Yeah, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Hey, we're just going to put you out there. Just run around for a while, and we're just going to get the coverage that we need. Of course, they had to set up the beautiful dove shot of all the doves scattering. I bet you that took 25,000 takes. But, I mean, just talk about, can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, we've been to plenty of St. Paddy's Day's parades in our day in Chicago, and just to have Tommy Lee Jones hopping around and jumping around, I mean, it's, it, that, that's hard to do this, that, these days. It would be pretty awesome. Um, I will say that it's not so far out of the stretch. There, there were a couple uh, parades where me and a certain uh, Lawrence Michael Donahue got super tuned up before we headed on down to the parade and rode a lot of floats, not being in the parade, just jumping over the uh, banisters and uh, hopping on to a float for a little while, hopping off, walking backwards, getting on a new one, hopping back on. Uh, meanwhile, drinking an entire fifth of whiskey to our face. So uh it was a wild time chicago chicago was a was a feral wild existence back then jeff you know st patrick's day for you was uh was it a get up and drink early was it a parade type thing for you because in chicago for chicagoans to see st patrick's day in a movie is actually a really big thing because we adore that holiday a whole lot and it captured it pretty well yeah it it, it's it's a fantastic scene. I can, listen, this isn't about me and drinking alcohol on St. Patrick's Day. This is about Harrison Ford. I love that, again, as I've watched this movie 500 times, and now I just think about these things. As an adult, I think about them. And one of them, for instance, is the sequence ends. Like, you feel like it's going Harrison Ford's way when he's standing in line with those Shriners when he's walking, and then he just kind of, he just kind of peels off. I love that that's when the sequence ends, when he's 13 feet away from Tommy Lee Jones and just peels off and Jones is like, I give up. He's 26 feet away from you at this point. He peels off into the crowd. He's still in downtown Chicago. Where does, I I just think about these things now. The next 12 hours of his life, what happens in that point? Like, does does he just hide out in a 
alleyway and wait for everything to cool down. He has to wait for the parade to end. I, it's great. Those are the things I actually think about. Like, how does he get away? M remember in the sequence when he leaves Sykes' house and he's in the alley and a cop car pulls down the alley and he just takes a moment and then goes behind a couple trash cans? Tell me about the next 12 hours. That, yeah, that is, so, that is so not thought out and that is so close to getting busted on that one. So I mean, that one, that one was wildly, wildly reckless. And I do also love the, uh, the concept of, there's a bar where he's drinking a Budweiser in the middle of the day, which is a very, very Chicago thing to do in like a random middle neighborhood. And he, if I'm not mistaken, he walks out of the bar and there's another bar across the street. <laughs> Chicago, well, baby. Not only, hop in. The, the, not only is there another bar across the street and he's down on, he's down way on the South side. He's at like 103rd and St. Lawrence right there. Uh, but he sees the cop across the street and that tips him off that maybe the cops are, are staking out his, where he's living. And so then he climbs up on the roof and he sees the cops staking him out. And let's get to it. This is a, one of my, uh, another great section. This begins the, the mad dash to the finish line. Well, I'm trying to solve a puzzle and I just got a big piece. Jeff, we're going to start with you. Frederick Sykes or Charles Nichols? Who's your villain of choice? Who's your, who's your preferred villain in this movie? You know, who scares you the most? Who do you like the most? Who do you got your eyes on? I think Nichols. Nichols is fantastic. That actor is, he's so good. I mean, what a great misdirect that he's his friend. He gives him money early on. I don't know what country he's from, but his accent is fantastic. He, he <laughs> it's Southside. The, what? Oh, is that, is that the Southside? That's what Chicago is like. Yeah. Richard, I'm trying to watch the White Sox. <laughs> That scene, his first Tommy Lee Jones scene, uh, right before that montage we're talking about where he's got, I'm looking at the line right now, where he's like, we're, we're kind of smart. We're smart people. Is he as smart as you? Like he handles, oh, when Sykes and when Jones is desperate at the end of the film and Tommy Lee Jones comes up to him and he, he interrupts him because he's about to go do that convention. And uh, he goes up to, oh, Nichols, not Sykes. He goes up to Dr. Nichols and just sticks his badge in the old man's face that is freaking hilarious. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, he's talking. He's like, oh, hello. He's at the convention. And he just... He just goes U.S. Marshals, and he just sticks it right into the old man's face. Oh, so I think I think Nichols is the best character because he did not see it coming, even though we've all... I really thought about it from a place of, if I hadn't watched this movie, no way would I think he's the bad guy. And before I go to Dan, uh, follow up to you, Jeff. When you say that, you know, uh, you, oh, you saw Richard this morning. Uh, I gave him some money. How much did you give? Oh, just a couple of bucks. A couple of bucks. He's rich. How much? What's a couple of bucks? Is yeah, that like two and, grand? Is it like two yeah, grand? And he just blows it off. Well, Joey Pants just blew Pantaleone's like, oh, I can't get too far on that. He could have had $5,000 in his pocket. Yeah, a couple of bucks to him could be like eight C notes. You know what I'm saying? Like, and yeah. that's how that set him up, and that moved him along. Yeah, he can't get too far on that. This is the man that belongs to a racket club in the heart of Chicago. I do want to just add one more thing to this cash thing that I didn't think about. Speaking of it being 1993, we're not using debit cards and credit cards all over the place. We're using cold hard cash and checks. So the idea that he probably did have quite a bit of cash on him in his pocket to give over to to Richard Kimball. Is is a pretty high percentage, I would say. He's probably got some decent some decent flow in his pocket at that point. No, I think he staked him to like a pretty good a pretty good start, to be honest with you. A couple more things before we get out of here. We do have the ending that I do want to ask you about, but you know, let's just talk real quick about Dr. Kimball, doctor, you know, so preoccupied trying to solve his wife's murder, 
trying to evade Tommy Lee Jones and the Bloodhounds, the U.S. Marshal Service. He still has time to save a child's life. Oh, and truly, a, just a really cool move. Like, as an audience member, you get reminded that he's a great guy. It's a great kind of divergence from this cat and mouse that's, you know, been going for quite a while. You know, how long can you continue the, you know what I mean? It was a little bit of a break in the action and just a really cool scene. I mean, just even when you said we have to wrap things up, I was like, oh, we have so much to talk about, including saving the kid's life. And you get the great Julian Moore scene after that, or during that and after. Uh, oh, my God, that kid does such a wonderful job. That's his real name, by the way, that they use when they call him Joey, I believe. That's his, the actor's real name. And he says, how you doing, champ? Like, I can't talk, as a father, I can't talk about it too much because that gets me emotional. Like, that scene is so well done. That kid would have died had they... You know, in Cook County, again, I've learned about Cook County Hospital because I was in Chicago a couple years ago, basically one of my first times I injured myself. And I jokingly said to my friends, which hospital? Ooh, can I go to Cook County? And they're like, no, 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 man. No, that's all those doctors are on roller skates there, sir. It's not exactly what you think. Um, <laughs> they're all rollerblading around. It's, it's a mess. It's just a wonderful scene. I mean, I love that scene. It's, my, it's one of my favorite scenes when he saves the kid's life. Yeah, and you know what? It's also another scene where it's not really anyone's fault. It's chaotic. It's crazy. You know, the guy is trying to tend, the doctor with the mustache is trying to tend to like three different patients at once. He kind of doesn't spend the, the due diligence to look at that x-ray. And then, you know, Richard Kimball is able to swoop in there and immediately diagnose what's going on. And he does it throughout the whole movie. Like Dan just talked about, he's like the weird, uh, the doctor's like the weird guardian angel, right? The guy who they pull out of the train wreck. They get him off the ambulance. He helps them out and goes, hey, he's got a puncture in the upper gastric area. You know, he can just continually kind of saves lives with that knowledge. It's such a great little addition to the movie. You've got to think that the Hippocratic Oath is the reason that Dr. Richard Kimball actually stays alive, right? He works so hard to keep other people alive. And in turn, the karmatic energy comes back his way. And I think that the Hippocratic Oath is what saves Dr. Richard Kimball long enough to clear his name. So it's time to get to the part of the movie where as I get older and I continue to watch it, I love this movie to pieces, but let's just talk about the murder team. I wanted to ask you about Sykes and Nichols, who you prefer, but let's just put this lineup together here for a second. And then you guys tell me how potent this actually really is on its face. The murderer has one arm. He's only got one arm. The fight in the end on the train, you're just like, Harrison, man, what are you doing? You're Han Solo. Let's go, bro. I mean, let's work the other side of the body here a little bit. And then in terms of trying to pull off what Nichols was trying to pull off, uh, you know, what, what, does, the, does the validity check out here that the guy is trying to create this multi-million, perhaps multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical enterprise with one liver sample? Jeff, your thoughts? Oh, that's a good point. That's right. I mean, this is a campaign. This is a convention. And they're looking at them, and he's basically duplicating the same liver sample. What? 55,000 times and when he place. finds out that he gets that he gets in trouble he hires a one-armed man i mean i know the guys in ghost uh the, the dudes in ghost almost had a better team put together in theory than this group i'll say this much i don't really care like exactly I like at that point in the movie i just stopped caring about that because i knew he was so close and i think this movie is way more about the close call escapes kimball has trying to figure out why his wife was killed. That's the more exciting stuff. So once we get to this chaotic scene, I just don't, 
I didn't like the Jane Lynch scene doesn't bother me that I forget. Oh yeah, this is exactly what's going on. The liver samples and all that kind of stuff. Like it's just cooler when he confronts him that we get to that and then he gets into the banquet hall. And that's all I really think about. The kid in me, the 14 year old that saw this movie for the first time, just thinks about that moment and not really the specific little minutiae, you know, what's happening at this point. And that's a great way of clarifying it. And the motive actually isn't as important as it normally is in other movies. The whole time you're just worried about who killed his wife and we got to go out there and get this guy. Even when you get the knowledge and the revelation that this, you know, Charles Nichols is basically scamming the pharmaceutical industry for millions and millions of dollars. And in fact, actually getting people sick and perhaps sending them on a path towards, you know, death, because in the beginning of the movie, Kimball has to go in there for an emergency surgery to save someone who is already having liver problems from taking said drug. It is funny, though, that it does kind of take a backseat to, as an audience member, you just care about, you know, who killed his wife. Yeah, so, so there's a couple things that totally track for me on this. And, and I want to say, I know I said this sort of uh, as a joke, and I'm still saying it as a joke a little bit, but uh, this movie's a way ahead of its time, right? Like, we've got the, the perils of big pharma. Uh, we've got police brutality. We've got a white guy shooting a black guy without talking to him. <laughs> we've, got, um, uh, we've also got the Chicago police royally fucking up uh, a case, which totally tracks for me. Um, and, and let's not forget that Sykes is a former cop. So are the boys in blue covering for their, for their brethren? Ooh, fun wrinkle. That's a good point. We do forget about, that's right. We haven't even talked about those two Chicago cops that are in every oh. Chicago movie. Oh, we're about to right now. Cause I want to hear who your favorite side characters, you know, not oh. Tommy Lee, not Harrison Ford, pick a favorite side category, a uh, side character, subcategory, favorite Chicago actor in this movie. Dan, you can go first. Okay, we did get to see some great Chicago guys. We saw um, uh, uh, Neil Flynn, we saw Dave Pasquese, Jane Lynch, obviously, Julianne Moore, but my favorite character is Ron Dean's partner. Ron Dean's partner oh. is the most quintessential Chicago actor, like Chicago cop. I don't think that guy's an actor. I think he's actually a Chicago detective because he's terrible as an actor, but my God, does he look like Chicago. Yeah, I'm going, uh, I'm going Ron Dean, who's going to make a second appearance here on our Chicago Movie Podcast series, who came up in Rudy the first time we did this. So welcome back to the pod, Ron Dean. My favorite line from him is when they're trying to explain their thought process through why they absolutely think Richard Kimball is the killer. You know, Tommy Lee Jones offers up, well, he's already a doctor. He's already rich. And he just goes, well, he's richer. <laughs> Boom. Totally crumbles. Mic drop. The whole thing crumbles. <laughs> It makes it, and then it just brings you back to being like, what the hell was his lawyer doing? This guy is worth so much money. We can't find the guy. I looked around. I tried to do everything I could. Yeah, Richard Kimball's lawyer is another story. But, uh, you know, Jeff, favorite side character, maybe slash favorite Chicago-based actor in this movie that isn't Tommy Lee Jones or Harrison Ford? Well, I, I, I agree with both you guys. Those two, it's just those two cops. They don't give a fuck. Like, they do not care about anything else besides the fact that he's guilty. And also, when they, get, when they try to one-up after uh, Sykes kills the, the police officer in the train, which had at least five or six eyewitnesses who could have quickly told you that it wasn't Richard Kimball, no, 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 no. So then you go back to the cops who are like, let's fucking kill this guy. And remember, even 
then Jones, Tommy Lee Jones at one point says, like, we got to get to him before the Chicago police do because they're just going to murder this guy. Like, the Chicago police are they're none crazy. too smart at this point. Yeah, they, they flipped the switch him. and they said, just kill him. The, the, kill, yeah. the kill contract is out for every single Chicago cop on Richard Kimball. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, he's a dead man. He's a dead man. Even then, even when they get interviewed after it's kind of like, remember all the, the uh, reporters are like, no, what do you think? They're, you have a one-armed man in custody. They're still like, look, guy's guilty. He was guilty in a court of law. They go, the reporter goes, how many one-armed people can there be? And Ron Dean goes, there's a lot of one-armed guys around here right now. <laughs> E-T-F-O, Ron Dean. Thanks for coming. Thanks for playing. Yeah, you know, everyone's going to go to Joey Pants on this one. He's so amazing hilarious lines anyone in the ensemble is pretty awesome i mean i think joe pantoliano then from you know went on to like bad boys and became that guy in thousands and thousands of movies another great part about the fugitive you mentioned it earlier this is one of my favorite bits in the world is as as an actor and especially as one who has never really booked considerable juicy roles in his life i am more of a one-line guy this movie is chock full of one line like nailed it you know what i mean like the book it guy my favorite also is when tommy lee jones gets into the hotel and there's this shorter security guard and he's literally going line for line with tommy lee jones where he's like how many exits are in this place And he's like there's one in the north and one in the east and he's got a rip with tommy lee and rip with them for like five straight exchanges and gotta go bop 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 and he, he nails it. Good for this guy. Yeah, we watched a lot of, I think all three of us, you can tell because we've seen it so many times, watched, tried to watch some external stuff. When Tommy Lee Jones does his famous, you know, we got a fugitive. If you notice, Joe Pantoliano is already talking to somebody else. During this amazing speech, it doesn't affect working. His team is telling other people what to do in that sequence. I, this is the best. It's the best character with the best supporting cast and it's just this movie it's and i'm gonna just jump out because i know you asked the question you emailed us it's the best movie about chicago a lot of people say ferris bueller's day off and i'm with them but oh and backdraft baby absolutely but if you ever like lived in chicago on a wednesday afternoon in february at like 2 15 and maybe like you know whatever had a budweiser or you're just walking from the local store freezing cold with nothing to do you know, this movie is basically that, like, in a nutshell. It's not like the pizzazz of Chicago, which, you know, it's amazing things are happening all the time, but, like, this is, settles a little bit more into its actual place. I'm glad you said that. And the timeline, again, just talking about the timeline does jump around in this movie because it's been a year since, at the end of the movie, it's been well over a year since this whole thing happened. Somebody, one character even says that. What are you talking about? That was a year ago when this happened. So they just... So there's a lot of time that we could touch on another season. Oh, no, no, no. This is post-Christmas, miserable, you know, January 1 to March 28th. You know, just that, like, worst time of year, freezing. The one thing that I I found to be the most unbelievable part of the movie, Mr. Johnson is in the hospital, and he's got the neck brace on, and Mr. Johnson can't move, and this nurse puts the water in the eggs like 25 feet away from him. And then she's like antagonizing him by being like, drink up, Mr. Johnson. You got your strength. And he's like, I fucking can't reach the, the water and the food in the first place. And I, and I will say just for me, it's, it's, it is what I've already mentioned before, which is the, the brilliant cuts of movies where just I now as an older person in my 40s think to myself, wait a minute. So he hid behind trash cans and then he just got back home? 
He got in a cab. He got on a bike. Also, I, what's the woman, the good Samaritan that just, he's not hitchhiking. He's just walking on the bridge. And this woman out of nowhere just pulls over and goes, hey, hey, stranger, you need a Yeah, yeah she uh, no, that's to go a, to Bangtown. Let's, yeah, that's let's, a thirsty Samaritan is what we yeah, call thirsty. that right there. Yeah. Great misdirect, by the way. Two phenomenal misdirects in this movie that you think he's going to get caught. And instead, it's the other guy. Yeah. You know, should they even say, remember they say like she got, they say something about a car and he's. Yeah, yeah. She picked him up and took him home from work or whatever. Yeah. 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 Real funny misdirect with uh, you think that it's actually them walking into the house and it's Copeland the whole time. And they're sort of kind of trailing it, which is also a great part of the movie where you think that their whole sole focus is only on one criminal when it's obvious that other criminals got away in this massive train wreck. They're working the entire case, which I found to be a kind yeah. of interesting way to sort of, I don't know, make it a little bit more authentic. My final question for you guys, and this is a common criticism, is that the ending does not match the first and second act. The first act has a huge set piece that is iconic and memorable. The second act, in theory, well, I guess maybe the tail end of the first act, has the famous line of, I didn't kill my wife, I don't care, the damn jump. It's an amazing thrill ride, and some people film critics have knocked it for the ending, maybe feeling a bit of a come down or maybe not reaching the heights that the first section of the movie perhaps reached. Listen, they, you get, they, they did everything they could. They, they try to shoot Tommy Lee Jones with, uh, you know, with the doctor trying to shoot him, which of course that's another Hollywood move where someone just for some reason holds a gun for a bit longer till Harrison Ford can come around the corner with a steel pipe and smash you in the knees. Um, I heard, I read that Joey, Joey, uh, Joe Pantoliano was supposed to get killed in that sequence and he went to bat being like please don't because I already know this movie's so good and there's definitely going to be a sequel so he went to bat and they kept him alive uh, and he got to be in the sequel um, no man they wrap it up really well in the car I think that car sequence is beautiful when he gets in the car and then Tommy sits next to him I thought you didn't care you know don't tell anybody or whatever he says uh, the music, the classic 90s music is that old uh, Chevy pulls away or whatever that classic kind of car is. So I don't mind it. I love a good ending like this. I think they seal it together. I think it's great. And personally, they got a lot of exposition that they have to unload. And I think they do it in a really smart way. The first way is Harrison Ford breaks up Charles Nichols's speech, which is one of my favorite. Like, I love making that. Richard, I'm in the middle of a speech. It's like one of my favorite impressions to do. And they roll the exposition out in this big, you know, glaring, revealing way in front of everyone, reveals it to everyone. And then when they're in the bottom in the laundry, this is actually the tense moment of the killers in the room. Richard Kimball's also in the room. They're hunting each other. Tommy Lee Jones is now in the mix. And then Tommy Lee Jones yells out to him all the information that he's learned the whole movie in this really tense moment is then wrapped up with him, as you said, the bar to the knee. And he literally just goes, they killed my wife. Like, boom, <laughs> he's at, like, just lays him at the doorstep. Uh, I, I, I'm in disagreement with the fact that it ends weekly. I, I you know, I, I think that it's a wonderful ending. I, the, 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 from what we brought up, from what I brought up earlier, we know from the beginning that Richard Kimball is not guilty. I'm never expecting a big reveal that he is either guilty or not guilty. We know that. That is information that is intrinsically there. And so for their, like, all you can do is get the guy that actually did it. And we do that in this movie. We get that resolution. We get to see that, like, Richard Kimball is vindicated. Um, 
And so, like, I don't know. Those movie critics need to watch a few more films, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I've got a fun one for you guys, too. That, again, I was just reading in the research about this, and it always comes back to Tom Cruise for me. Can you guys guess real far, uh, right up just quickly, what Tom Cruise movie that came a little later after this is, like, the exact same plot? It's like the exact same plot. Well, Mission Impossible is very similar in terms of he's a man on an island. Everyone thinks that he's involved, and now it's a race against time to find out who actually set him up. It's Minority Report. It's the same storyline. Like, like when I read it and they they broke it down, I was like, oh, my God, that is very similar. I never thought about that. Two different worlds. But, yeah, Tommy always comes back to Tom Cruise. Gentlemen, I think this is going to do it. This was the 1993 Chicago film, The Fugitive, with my good friends Dan Sanders-Joyce and Jeff Meacham. You guys, thank you so much for joining I always have a pleasure talking to you guys about these movies. And this is going to be a fun little holiday treat for people. Hopefully they get a chance to check out this movie. You're going to get all bundled up on the couch and watch a really cold movie, The Fugitive. This is the one for you. Today's episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. This was Betting Chicago with Joey Christopoulos. Thank you so much for listening to the pod. Happy holidays, everyone. We're going to have some more pods coming up. Until then, be well, be safe, be good to each other. We will talk soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.